Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This program is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series, featuring David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornaski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as listeners and viewers know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, the first of 2023, we're discussing healthcare in Canada and the U.S., particularly this week's announcement by the Ontario government that it intends to expand the role of the private sector in de- delivering healthcare services in the province. The announcement has precipitated a larger debate about how best to provide affordable and timely access to healthcare in a world of pandemic-induced step backlogs and aging demographics. David, thanks as always for joining me. I'm so glad to be here, especially since this week, um, you can do some of the heavy lifting by opening (laughs) with a discussion of of the important piece you posted on the Hub, but how maybe there's an opportunity for Canadians to discuss healthcare provision in a less ideological way than they usually do. Yeah, I'm struck, David, um, that what we've seen in the past several months uh, across the country, advanced by governments from the center left to the center right, is increasing recognition um, that we are not going to address the significant backlogs that have been built up over the course of the pandemic and prepare ourselves uh, for what's sometimes referred to as a, a gray tsunami, uh, which in effect describes the, the the pressure that aging demographics are going to put on our healthcare system without thinking pragmatically about the mix of public and private when it comes to the delivery of of basic healthcare services like uh, surgeries or, or diagnostic testing, uh, rather than this particular episode uh, being a case of a, a right-wing government advancing a, an ideological agenda, uh, I'm struck by uh, the policy convergence that we're seeing from the, from the left and the right, which suggests to me uh, that we may be on the cusp of some kind of policy settlement uh, when it comes to healthcare reform in Canada, which, as you know, as well as anyone, David, uh, has been uh, something of a, a third rail in Canadian politics. And that's something I, I intend to put to you in, t- in today's conversation. Um, but before we get there, uh, you know, I think it's worth situating your involvement in thinking about healthcare over the years, both in Canada and in the U.S. Uh, you're, you're someone who's quite modern and pragmatic on the healthcare file. You've been consistent on both sides of the border. You've argued for a stronger safety net in the U.S. to achieve something approximating universality and a greater scope for the private sector in Canada to achieve greater access and efficiency. How do you think about these questions when it comes to Canada and the U.S.? How are the problems and challenges in the two countries similar 
and different. Well, well, thank you. And I, I hope I have been consistent. I think my idea on this goes back to a point that was made by John Stuart Mill almost 200 mm. years ago um, when, he, when he argued, and he was speaking of education in this case, that the decision to make something a universal state-provided guarantee doesn't mean that the state has to be itself the provider. Um, the state can see that something be done, but it doesn't have to do it itself. And in many cases, it's a good idea for it not to try to do it itself. So um, I've argued on, in, on the American side, there are people who say healthcare is a right. Um, I, I find that I don't, I'm just generally not comfortable with rights talk. And I, I don't know what it means for something that costs money to be a right, because does that mean that taxing is a duty? But what you can say is the absence of healthcare provision in a country that can afford it is a great human wrong, whether it's a right or not. Um, so that, and the American system is so inefficient and wasteful. I mean, we're eight, more than 18 points of GDP um, to provide uh, um, non-universal healthcare outcomes generally are lacking. I think the United States is, is about to be overtaken by China in terms of life expectancy. I think it's already um, about the only country in the OECD where the average life expectancy is not over 80. So that's a failure. But in the, in the, on the Canadian side, the, the insistence that, um, uh, look, while, while everyone can be paid, no one can make a profit. Um, uh, and it gets kind of theological. So, so yeah, a doctor can be paid a generous, generous wage, but so long as it's called a wage and not a profit, then it's fine. But the moment that the moment the doctor is to say, well, let me take a, a smaller wage and a profit share, well, then you've bitten the evil apple and, and, this, and uh, innocence is lost forever. So the, the, the great problem that Canadian governments have faced is um, they have this terrible imbalance in who needs healthcare and where the taxes come from. Healthcare is consumed by older people, usually past working age, but it's paid for by younger people during working age. In Canada, the shortages are most acute in rural areas, uh, but the revenue comes from urban areas. Um, and uh, of course, the burden of lack of healthcare provision falls heavily on the poorest, um, but the taxing uh, is most resisted by the wealthier. Um, and so you have to square that circle. And, and while Canadians congratulate themselves on universality, that universality is a little out of date. It's a promise, but it's a promise that is often not honored. And meanwhile, new areas of um, equally urgent healthcare provision, dentistry, mental health, because they were not included in the original grant of universality back in the 1960s, uh, they're not in the grant of universality now, even though, it, as we learn more and more, we can see that mental health is, the, is actually the master ailment behind so many uh, physical manifestations. And if, and if there isn't universal mental health, then, then you're going to be chasing um, industrial accidents and addiction and a lot of things that don't have really physical causes. They have mental causes. Uh, there's so many lines of analysis uh, that I want to pursue out of that comprehensive answer, David. But uh, before we get there, let's just uh, pull back a second and take up the point I, I raised earlier uh, uh, about the extent to which healthcare reform, particularly expanding the role for the private sector, has been something of a, a third rail in Canadian politics. And as I mentioned, what strikes me in recent years is more and more politicians from uh, former NDP Premier John Horgan in the province of British Columbia, now to Conservative yeah. Premier in Ontario, Doug Ford, and virtually everyone in between seems prepared to, to challenge those taboos and, and make the case for private delivery within a universal system. Uh, what do you think is behind that? And have the politics of healthcare been 
irre irrevocably changed uh, coming out of the pandemic? Well, I, I can't answer that last question. I don't know. But I, here are some things that I think are going on with the way um, politicians of all parties think about private provision. Private provision offers a number of changes that um, the existing Canadian system can't seem to achieve on its own. First, um, it offers ways to think about rationalizing delivery. Um, that what, what a private provider needs above all is a price. Um, they, uh, they need, what does it cost to provide the service? So how do we, so we can charge in a rational way? Um, Canadian medical system has not often thought about the issue of price. There's a service and then the government undertakes to provide it, but it often doesn't come up with a number as to what this service truly costs. Um, and and every element of the service. I mean, it can be kind of bizarre when you go to an American hospital and they've got a line for you know bandages and they've got a line for aspirin. And a lot of that is, by the way, horribly abusive and deceptive. So I, I don't want to defend that. But someone is thinking about what does it cost to provide this knee replacement? Um, and how do we make a margin on that? Well, that's information that people who are engaged in practices less abusive and less deceptive than some American hospital corporations could benefit from. The second thing that... Um, private provision laws is it allows you to reconsider who does what in a hospital. Um, and, you know, Ontario and I think other provinces are struggling with this tremendous shortage of general practitioners. Um, do we need MDs to do all the things that general practitioners are asked to do? Um, you know, there, there, are, there are other kinds of qualifications and skills that, that people could have. Um, and in particular, private provision could also create for the first time a really effective lobby. Um, to deal with the issue of qualification. Canada is a massive immigration magnet. Many of the people arrive with some kind of medical credential in their home countries. And although Canadians can be kind of dismissive about the medical credentials of certain countries, in fact, in many countries that are quite poor, um, the, uh, the people who run, run the gauntlet to complete medical training actually have skills that are not only um, equal, but sometimes more impressive because they have less technology to work with. Uh, they have to do more by their knowledge and intuition and less by diagnostics and machines than people might do in a more advanced economy. Mm -hmm. um, so you can, you can begin to think about credentialing. You can think about breaking down guilds. You can think about who does what. You can think about pricing. Um, and you can also entice forward new sources of revenue into the system. I mean, right now, the only source of revenue for those things that are deemed to be universal not including mental health, not including dentistry, but for the things that are deemed universal, the only source of revenue is taxes. And it is hard to tax. It, uh, people are very resistant. People are less resistant to paying voluntarily for something that will benefit themselves or their loved ones. And so if, I mean, I think some of the more central planning Canadian types will say, we don't need private provision. There's nothing wrong with Canadian healthcare that another half point of GDP or three quarters of a point of GDP couldn't fix. So, okay, you go tax that half point. You go tax that three quarters of a point. See if it works. And then, well, no, we can't. People won't, won't let us pay that. They'll vote for the people who promise not to raise the tax. Well, what if you could find some way to get that money voluntarily? Wouldn't that be easier? I, I want to take up a, a, a point that you've you've raised so far, and, and that is the extent to which we have a, a hybrid system in Canada, as is uh, a combination of uh, public and private. And yeah. it, it prompts the question, what do you attribute the ongoing resistance to? Uh, you know, I think, for instance, of the Trudeau government's dental benefit proposal, which is going to function a lot like how Ontario Premier Doug Ford is talking about cataracts, hip and, and knee surgeries. What do you ex think explains the cognitive dissonance between living with a pretty considerable role for the private sector in parts of our healthcare system and then fundamentally opposing it when it comes to hospitals and physician care? 
Well, um, I think there are many causes, including path dependency, just what people are used to. Um, but I think Canadians also suffer, and Americans suffer too, from the proximity of the two extreme outliers in the OECD right next door to each other. I mean, if you were to take every healthcare system um, of the 20 or 25 or 30 most advanced countries, you would see a range of public and private provision. And at the extremes, you would see Canada, which com almost completely bans private provision in the areas where the government is active. And at the other extreme is the United States, which is the one that operates a non-universal system. And bang, they're right next door and they speak the same language and people travel back and forth. And so they, they have this false, Americans get the false idea. Well, gee, if we provide universality in the United States, we'll end up with the, no doctors in the countryside the way they have in Canada. And Canadians think if we have some private provision, the way the Dutch do and the Norwegians do and the Swiss do, French and Germans do. We'll end up like the United States, where you go to the hospital and and they find a way to demand your house uh, for. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so I, I think we each frighten each other away from reforms that um, European countries that lie in between those two extremes find it easy and natural to adopt. As politicians across the country think about these questions, what do you think they ought to be mindful of? Uh, how can we incorporate more private delivery without sacrificing the principle of universality, which polling tells us remains a major priority for Canadians? Well, when when a Canadian politician at a senior level sits down with his or her civil servants uh, and look reviews auctions, they will, of course, study the systems in Europe, but they don't communicate that. Um, and I, I think it, a, a great help would be if if Canadians could become more familiar with how things are done, not in the United States, we all we all think we know that, but how things are done in, in, in the Netherlands and, and in Norway and Switzerland. So, you know, those don't seem to be, people don't lose their houses if they get sick in those countries, but it's also possible um, that, uh, you know, that it's also possible to open a clinic and offer a new kind of service in a new kind of way. I mean, do cataracts, or you mentioned cataracts, does that have to be done by a person with a certain kind of credential? Um, who's scarce and who and who comes from a, a certain kind of university? Uh, would what would be lost if that service were offered by a nurse practitioner with a certain amount of experience, or by someone who went to medical school in India or Nigeria instead of in in Canada? What now maybe something would be that's not something to be um, take on faith, but you would begin to think more creatively. You're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I would just say in parentheses, David, you've talked a bit about uh, different universal models around the world. What's striking about the Canadian model is, I would argue, it's actually less egalitarian than some of those others because it provides... Uh, you know, approx something approaching 100% first dollar coverage for hospital and physician services, irrespective of one's means or ability to pay. Uh, and then for the, the other parts of the system, you've mentioned some of them already, drugs, dental, mental health, etc. 
it provides pretty parsimonious public support for uh, low-income households and, and our most vulnerable citizens. And it seems to me, uh, if you were starting the system from scratch, uh, you would stretch those public dollars across a wider range of services, but probably providing shallower support, particularly for those uh, with means. But the net effect is we seem kind of locked, as you say, in this original Medicare blueprint um, that not only is providing um, uh, failing to provide timely access, I would argue is even failing on, on the goal of egalitarianism. Uh, um, and so your point about uh, looking out to the world to see how other countries, countries that you know we would see as sharing our 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 values and 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 beliefs when it comes to the importance of universality, uh, may offer a, a better way forward. Um, I, I, I mentioned. Oh, pardon me. One other yes. inequality that, um, and that is the one between um, cities and and rural places. Um, so Canada's economic development strategy. Uh, and we can criticize that, but Canada is very uh, focused on keeping people where they are. Um, uh, the unemployment insurance, uh, regional subsidies of all kinds, um, and that, that the goal is to keep people living in rural places, to keep people living in um, provinces where um, the level of economic activity is not as high as in some other provinces. But the healthcare system says, now there's a price to be, you, you will get the unemployment benefit and you will get you know, a subsidized um, freight railway to keep things working. But of course, there won't be any doctors or dentists. And you think, well, how, uh, if, if the policy is to keep people where they are, then you have to find some way to bring the services to them. And if you're not going to bring the services to them, then you have to jettison this idea of keeping them working where they are. Um, and those two things have never been reconciled. And the result is the biggest and most um, probably lethal inequality in the Canadian system is that between what you will find in Calgary, Toronto, or uh, Montreal, and what you will find in more rural places. Yeah, well said. Um, I mentioned earlier um, that what we're seeing, it seems to me, is uh, a growing convergence uh, in terms of uh, the healthcare reform across the various provinces. It's interesting, David, there's often a lament that we have a quote unquote patchwork system because uh, because of our federal model and because healthcare is primarily a provincial responsibility. Uh, but what do you think it tells us that notwithstanding uh, uh, our system of federalism, we're, we're, we're approaching something of a policy convergence. Is this a case of the provinces either knowingly or unknowingly holding hands and jumping together to address this issue? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I sometimes I, ideas are infectious and sometimes you just all run out of options at the same time. You know, yes. um, back in the middle 1990s, all the provinces left and right did fiscal tightening at the same time. You know, you had, um, you know, a, a, Ralph Klein was doing in 1993 what Bob Ray in Ontario was doing that, that same year, because they had to. Uh, and in the same way, um, right now, provinces have to find, there isn't enough supply in the medical system, and that problem is going to get worse. Uh, there isn't, will, uh, governments are not willing and not able to tax to provide that supply in the way it has historically been provided in Canada and anyway, um, the supply isn't adequate because it doesn't cover the things that are the new and most growing needs. So re resources have to come from somewhere. And if you're not going to tax them, then you have to find some way to persuade people to provide the resources voluntarily. Um, the, the healthcare issue is being primarily motivated, at least in, in the immediate term, by pandemic-induced backlogs. Um, but there is, of course, the longer-term challenge of aging demographics and the pressure that it will inexorably place on the healthcare system. A subject that we've talked a bit about at the Hub in, in recent weeks 
is the question of intergenerational fairness when it comes to the welfare state. Uh, what are your views on the extent to which public spending in Canada, the US and elsewhere increasingly tilts in the direction of older populations? What in your view are the policy and political implications? Yeah, well, um, here's the way I, I think about this. Um, I, I don't, you know, if the economy were growing at three, 4% a year, people would worry about the problem of intergenerational fairness much less because they would know, well, the people who are 20 today, when they're 60 or 70, are going to be so much wealthier than today's 60 or 70 somethings, then, then what, you know, it just, it's just decent that they cover the costs. Um, but the problem is, of course, is as your society ages, its growth slows down. Um, and so, uh, and and so, it, it is not able. You, you are not so confident that people who are twenty or thirty will be much richer than people who are sixty or seventy, and then and and the whole thing then becomes much more more pressured. Um, Canada would seem to have an exit from this dilemma because of its successful immigration um, policies. Uh, uh, but the, it reminds you that one, once again that, that all of these arguments about distribution have and and have to follow the first arguments about. The creation of wealth in the first place, and uh, unless Canadian governments are really prepared to think very, very hard about that, and that means uh, thinking about things like energy production. Um, uh, that think that means think, thinking about th about reviving world trade and especially reviving North American trade. Um, mm -hmm. Then all these problems are going to get inescapably worse because the deal you're offering twenty, the deal that we offer twenty somethings, or that the society offered twenty somethings in the in um, in the 60s and 70s was you're going to pay taxes to provide pensions and health care to people who never pay taxes for those things themselves in the first place because the, the, those programs didn't exist there the people who began who turned 65 in 1965-70 were huge fiscal winners except for the small matter that they'd grown up during world war ii the depression and world war one <laughs> so they could say look we, we we did our bit you can pay a little tax and everyone said that seems right uh, we're, if we had if we had more of that um, confidence about the future and sense of gratitude to those who are older for the things that they had suffered, it, this would all be easier. So the answer, once again, is you need more growth, uh, and that takes us back again to philosophies of private investment, private provision. That's what drives economic growth. Uh, it's a fascinating observation. You were kind enough, David, to mention my article at the Hub this week on the Ontario government's healthcare reforms. I had another article um, about the fact that Ontario's economy is actually protected to be the slowing, uh, the, the, the slowest growing economy amongst all the provinces over the next couple of years. So I, I hadn't thought about connecting the dots uh, between those two observations. But you're right um, that growth is ultimately foundational uh, to our ability to deliver um, um, core public services, including but hardly limited to health care. I want to wrap up uh, on the subject of the U.S. healthcare debate, which you've been closely involved in over the years. Um, the Republicans came to office in 2016 with a promise to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, the changes were ultimately limited to repealing the mandate to purchase 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 insurance, but preserving much of the less rest of the architecture in place. How is the system working, and what if any reforms should, at least in theory? The new House Republican majority be pursuing to achieve the goal of something approximating universality while preserving the choice and flexibility and innovation that are the strengths of the American model. Yeah, I, I, I would. There's so much to say about that. I would direct Canadians to to one point that I think it's really important that Canadians understand. the The worst evil of the American system is not the the, um, the pervasiveness of of the profit motive. 
The worst evil is the, is the pervasiveness of provider capture of the system. Mm -hmm. um, that one of the, because one of the things that the profit motive is supposed to drive, and you see this in every other or almost every other industry, is relentless pursuit of cost efficiency. Um, relentlessly driving down um, the cost of providing the services because that's one, you know, if the customer is resistant to a price increase, the way you increase your profit is to drive down the cost of delivering the service. And, and, and everywhere we see that happening. And that is the, the driver of capitalistic enterprise. But in the United States, healthcare is very regulated. And so at turn after turn after turn, the provider captures the system, um, avoids the development of, of efficiency. And when I say provider, I don't mean just doctors, although they're part of the problem. I mean, hospital corporations. I mean, pharmaceutical manufacturers. I mean, all kinds of little guilds and um, uh, that, that, that capture that, that capture uh, rural hospitals in places where maybe you don't need to have a rural hospital anymore, full service rural hospitals where you don't need that. Um, and they, cap they capture regulators, they capture the system, and they say that we are going to offload, instead of seeking efficiencies upon ourselves, we're going to offload the costs of adjustment onto the customers. And then there's this endless battle between insurers and providers, where uh, uh, the provider says, we won't cut our price and you can't make us. And the insurer says, well, um, you know, we, uh, we, uh, we, you're right, we can't make you. What we'll do is dump uh, the unexpected shock of the million dollar heart operation. Uh, we won't take that on ourselves. We won't force it, you to find a way to make it cheaper. We'll dump it on the patient. Um, so the patient is losing out because um, not, neither the providers nor the insurers can find a way to drive efficiency. So I just, when I think about what is wrong with the system, and this is why, the, why I think it has always been a, a faint hope to look to the Republicans uh, to fix it, because while the Republicans are very keen on the profit motive, they are especially vulnerable to the interests uh, interest uh, of providers that have captured it. That they, they speak both for, they speak, you know, they, they speak both for the hospital corporations and the pharmaceutical companies. And I don't, I mean, pharmaceutical companies are the people recurring cancer, but they also have to, so God bless their work, but that doesn't mean they're entitled to infinite revenues at everybody else's expense. Uh, is there reason to think, David, that uh, healthcare reform may be on the agenda of the new Congress or, or, or is that uh, optimistic thinking? Zero. Uh, the, the, the key to healthcare reform is, um, it's extremely intellectually difficult. It's very politically difficult, and it requires a, a lot of human sympathy. Um, and when you look at a Congress where Kevin McCarthy is nominally in charge and Jim Jordan is really in charge, you're not going to see you're not going to see a lot of those virtues. Um, and anyway, I don't think you can drive it from from Congress. I think you need congressional cooperation, and you have to drive it from the executive branch. And of course, you have to involve the states because the American Fed, the Fed, American healthcare federalism is even more complex than Canadian. Um, the programs for the poor, Medicaid, are funded in part by the federal government and in part by the states, according to very complicated formulas. Each state gets a different deal. Uh, and, and then the states provide, and the states then have a lot of leeway um, to be more generous, less generous, to favor some and over others. Meanwhile, the program for the old, Medicare, is run by the federal government more or less on its own terms. And private provision, which is um, uh, flourishes in between Medicare and Medicaid, uh, then again, uh, that is regulated in different ways by the federal government and the states. So, so it has to come from the executive branch, I think, and, and it has to deal both with the states and with Congress. And you need um, a real commitment. And I, I, I fear, 
The last time we had such an effort was in the economic crisis of 2009, 2010. I think it'll probably take some other kind of crisis to drive another era of American reform. Well, if there's reason to be pessimistic about healthcare reform in the in the U.S., I, I think David, we're on the cusp of um, pretty significant reform in Canada. We've we've talked today about some of the the developments that we've seen at the provincial level. I would just note uh, this morning, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau uh, described what the Ontario government's talking about as quote an innovation. Um, uh, which is a signal from Ottawa that it's not going to instinctively come down with the hammer of the Canada Health Act and thwart um, uh, provincial efforts to reform the system. That's a sign to me um, that we may have uh, the basis of not just a, a cross-provincial consensus, but even a, 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 a federal consensus on the need for some role for private health care. Uh, so I'm grateful to have uh, talked about this with you and, and look forward to following some of these developments over the course of the year with you. Uh, David Frum, thanks for joining me for another episode of From Dialogues, and I, I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks. Me too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this special presentation of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornoski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.